Good morning. We continue this morning now in the book of Psalms, which we do every summer, and we talked about this a little bit last week, so I won't rehearse all of that. But last week we looked at Psalm 24, that was our first text in for this season, and I made last Sunday a pretty bold statement when I said that all or many, if not all, of the Psalms can be read Christologically, meaning as we read through the book of Psalms, we ought to be able to see the person and the work of Jesus Christ active there in the text. And so what we saw in Psalm 24 was some really clear examples of that, right? If you remember, if you were here last week, it was just very obvious that it was the work of Christ that was all over that psalm. But what I want to ask is, what do we do when the psalms are not that clear? There are many times where we are going to read and preach through these psalms, and it's not obvious. How does Jesus fit into this? Where is he? Is he there, or is Jacob just making things up when he says that the psalms can be read with a messianic or a Christological lens? And so I want to just mention something before we get into the Psalm 25 today, and I think there is more than one way to see Jesus in the Psalms, okay? The first way is really what we saw last week, where there is an obvious connection or fulfillment or application as we consider what the psalmist is writing compared to what we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus, And so last week we saw about the one ascending the hill of the Lord and being able to stand in the presence of God who earns righteousness for the people. And of course that is talking about Jesus because we see this fulfilled so clearly in his life and ministry. But what about the times when the connection seems less obvious, when it seems less clear? What do we do with that? And I'm going to suggest that there is yet another way that we can experience Jesus in the Psalms. And this goes for the entirety of the Bible, by the way. I'm not just talking about the Psalms. We could say specifically the Old Testament because it is less clear at times to see what's going on there. So I'm going to suggest that when we see less obvious things about Christ, here's what we should do. So we have the obvious lens, we have the less obvious lens. And I'm saying that the way we see Jesus in the Old Testament is not only through explicit typological examples, but it is through the work of his spirit. And here's what I mean. As the people of God, when we open the Bible, no matter where it is, if we understand the word, it is because the Holy Spirit is enabling us to understand. Amen to that? It is the Spirit of God who opens our understanding, who opens our hearts, and that is because Jesus came, did what he did, and sent the Spirit into the world. Okay, Jesus says this is John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, referencing the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So in part, the job of the Holy Spirit is to take the written word of God and bear witness about Christ. So when we come to texts that are 
not as obvious, not as explicit in their connection to Jesus, he is still there through his spirit. So Jesus comes, he completes the work that the Father gave him to do, and subsequently he sends his spirit into the world so that when you and I open the Bible, we read a text, we have even a little bit of understanding, that is the spirit of God at work through the word, bearing witness to Jesus. You tracking with me so far? No, I'm not going to twist these texts. I'm not going to force Jesus into this or try to create some kind of system that we must see the text through. But when he's there, I'm gonna tell you. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the focal point of all the universe. And he deserves maximum glory, maximum honor, maximum praise. So to read these texts and ignore the fact that the second person of the Trinity has sent his spirit into the world and is enabling you to understand would be a travesty. Therefore, I want to point you to Jesus. I mean, in some ways, we need to ask the question, what makes our preaching Christian? You know what I mean by that? We could preach good monotheistic sermons about God in general and never mention cross, never mention Christ, but then what's the difference between us and Judaism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses? Christ is the center of the scriptures and we want to find him. We want to expose his work And we want to celebrate the fact that it is all about him. So even when it is less obvious, even when you have to work a little bit harder, I'm telling you he's there. And he is worthy of our attention and our devotion and our worship. So with that trajectory, let's open our Bibles. Psalm 25 is where we find ourselves this week. So turn there with me if you would and we'll read this text together as we begin. Psalm 25, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me. And be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses and consider my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. 
Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray together. Lord, there is much here to be said. There is much to be learned. And so we ask now that the Spirit of Christ, who was sent into the world, would come and bear witness to Jesus. I pray that this psalm would open our understanding about what is available to the people of God through faith and through Christ. And as we read and as we think and as we study together, Lord, be pleased to come and be our teacher. You are the one who instructs sinners in the way. And so would you do that this morning, God? Not because of our effort and not because of our worth, but because of your mercy and your steadfast love, Lord, come and be our teacher. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this psalm than we normally do, namely because of the length of it. We just don't have the time to do every verse on its own. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you what I think is the overarching thesis statement or purpose of this psalm, and then I'm going to take that back to each section and apply it there. So you'll notice most of the translators do this. I'm assuming in your Bible it's the same, that this chapter is broken up into seven sections or pericopes, they're called. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see this thesis statement, and we're going to take that back to each of those seven sections and show how the living out of that thesis statement applies to each of the needs that are expressed in these seven statements. So we're going to deal with the whole thing, but we're going to deal with it in a slightly different way this morning. So I think the main theme of this text can be seen right away in verse 1. And you can probably see this with me, so let's look at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that this phrase, to lift up one's soul, is a Hebrew idiom that means to set your affection on that thing, to set the direction of your life, your emotions, your impulses towards that thing. That's what it means when it says to lift your soul. And we saw a negative example of this in Psalm 24 as we read that the man who would dwell in the presence of God will not lift up his soul to what is false or what is less than God. You remember that? So this phraseology, this verbiage of lifting up your soul means you are focused on and setting your affections, your heart, your desires on this one thing. So David opens now in Psalm 25 by saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And now the reason that I'm calling this the thesis or the overarching statement of the psalm is because I want you to just think for a minute about the implication of this kind of living. What if your life was marked and identified by a desire to focus only on God? What would that look like? If all of your intentions, your heart, your mind, your affections, your desires were set on God, and then everything else in your life trickled down from that, what would your life look like? Think about the 
trouble and the heartache and the pain and the frustration that could be avoided if you said, I refuse to set my affections on lesser things and I'm going to focus on lifting up my soul to God who is the only one who can satisfy me. What would that look like? Well, I think that's kind of what David has in mind here as he writes Psalm 25 because in these following seven sections, each one of those is going to represent a different need that David is expressing. And what I want to do is make that connection and show you how the lifting up of your soul to God will meet those needs that are expressed in this text. Now, I want you to also see that implicit in that statement So if someone is lifting their soul to God, the inverse is true that they are not lifting their soul to other things. Okay, I want you to catch that as we move through this. The the point of giving intentional instruction to say this is what you ought to do is to remind us that there are other things you ought not to do. Okay, this should be pretty obvious. Sometimes when I'm talking with people about time management or spiritual disciplines, they want to be more regular in scripture reading or whatever it is, we have to say, if you are engaged in one area, you are not engaged in another. Now that's, that's profound, isn't it? <laughs> but hang with me, see what I'm saying? If, if your soul is lifted to God, if you are setting your affections, your attention, your direction on Him, the implication is that you are not chasing after other things. I don't know about you, but I have not yet perfected the idea of being in two places at once. Kind of handy sometimes, especially as a parent. <laughs> but you know what I mean? This, this, is, this is kind of a preventative measure here to say, set your mind on God, lift your soul to God. It is going to keep you from many pains and many snares. So let's look at the rest of these seven sections and let's hold them up to verse 1 and see what the Lord has from us. First, look at verses 2 to 3. What's the main issue here in verses 2 to 3? What's the need? David says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, but they shall be ashamed who are wantonly or needlessly treacherous. Now it seems like shame is the issue here. Or the need would be to not be ashamed. Okay, this is what David is crying out. Now, shame often comes when we are reminded of something we've done or something we have failed to do, and it usually is tied to someone else's opinion or perspective of what we did in that situation. Now, you can have an internal sense of shame too, right? It's not only from external sources, but I think that's what's being talked about here is the external, the reputation, not wanting to be made look a certain way. And I think we get that in the text. Let not my enemies exalt over me. This is kind of a public shaming that's going on here. So if that's the need, if, we, if David does not want to experience shame because of his love for God, because of his following, and we saw that a lot last year, remember that from the Psalms, that David's concern is that God lived out in his life will look good, that he won't be despised because of the way David lives. So how does lifting one's soul to God keep one from being ashamed? Because it's kind of the, the, the uh, structure that we're going to take to this. What's the connection? And I'm thinking when you, when you set your affections... When you lift up your soul to God, 
your aim, your goal becomes to please him. And the more that you want to please him, the more that you know of God, the more you will be concerned with how God views you, with how God sees you, and the less you will care about how everybody else around you views you. The fear of man can be so crippling. Anybody else? You care too much about how people view you, how people see you. What are they going to think about what I wore or what I said or what I did or the job I didn't take or the way I'm raising my kids or what I do on Sunday? All these things come into our mind and we get so sensitive to how everybody else thinks of us. And I am telling you this morning, it matters infinitely more what God thinks of you than what everybody else thinks of you. Are you worried about being ashamed for the way you live your life, for the decisions you make? Are you worried about being ashamed if, if people knew that I actually go to church, that I believe, that I sit and listen to one person talk for 40 minutes? Who does that? Lift your soul to God. Understand that your goal in life ought to be to please Him. Let the other stuff go. David's crying out, don't let me be ashamed. And I'm saying, don't be crippled by the fear of man. Don't let everybody else's opinion dictate what you do, but be more concerned with how God views you and how your life is pleasing to him. Next, look at verses four to five. Here, I think the need that David is expressing is a need for direction. A need for direction. Look at some of the wording he uses. Make known to me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in truth and teach me. David is asking that God would set him on the correct course. That God would make known to him the way he should go. That God would give him direction. And this should resonate with us. I mean, how often in your life have you found yourself in a place where you just don't really know what to do? You've got a decision in front of you. You've got things that you need to decide, and sometimes it's really hard because they both seem like good options, whatever. We need the direction of God. We don't have all the things that we need to be pleasing to God. We don't have all the things internally that give us this sense of direction to follow the Lord. That's why David says, give me your ways, teach me your paths, give me the direction that I should go so that I can follow you and be pleasing to you. And by lifting your soul to God, by acknowledging that he is the one that your affection to be set on, that is functionally denying every other way. This is kind of like the inverse that we talked about in verse 1. If you are doing this, then you are not going that way. So by setting your soul on God, you are saying, God, I know you have the right direction for me. You have the path that I should take. You remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? All the Iwana people should remember this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That is lifting your soul to him and what will happen. He will direct your path. The need for direction is met and satisfied in lifting your soul to God and being concerned with how he sees you. Now the third section, verses 6 to 7, what we see here is the word remember three different times. You see that in the text? And I think the need here from David is what he's looking for is assurance. He's looking for assurance of God's love and the forgiveness of his sins. Look at verse 6. Remember your mercy 
O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Now, did God forget his mercy? Is David literally reminding God, hey, uh, I think you let that slip. You better remember what you did here a little bit ago. Remember your mercy? No. God forgets nothing. What David is asking God to do is to consider him, to think about him in terms of mercy rather than the wrath that God has against David's sin. He is saying, God, please act according to your attributes. Give me the assurance that your mercy is real, your steadfast love is there, that you're not going to change and suddenly start relating to me in terms of all my sin. David needs assurance of this love of God and this mercy of God. One of the things as we read the Psalms is that we see David has a very accurate assessment of himself. Right? He does not skirt around the issue that he has sinned, that he has broken the commandment of God, that he has fallen short of what God has instructed. He doesn't ignore that. He doesn't pretend like it's not an issue. But he also has a realistic understanding of the mercy and the forgiveness of God and the redemption that is promised from him. So he calls on God and says, I need to know that you haven't changed. I need to know that I have assurance that you will not deal with me according to my sin, but that you will remember me according to your mercy. David needs assurance of this. And by meditating on his word, by considering the law of God, by setting his affections on God, David can have confidence in this kind of assurance that God will indeed deal with him according to his mercy. The more we know of God, the more we understand his attributes and his character, the more assurance we can have that he is faithful to deal with us according to his word. Now the fourth section, verses 8 through 10, deal with a need for humility. Okay, you can probably see that in the text, a need for humility. I'm going to take a little roundabout way to get there, but hang with me. I want you to notice something in verse 8. There's a contrast in verse 8 that is just oozing with hope. Isn't that a great word, ooze? I love it. There's hope just oozing out of this verse. And here's what I mean. Look at the contrast. Notice on one hand, we have God who is good and upright. God is perfect in all his attributes. And on the other hand, we have sinners. Now, what does something that is good and upright, pure and righteous, have to do with sinful man? They're about as far apart as two things can get. And yet, God is compassionate. He is gracious. He is kind to the degree that it says, the Lord instructs sinners. Do we deserve that? Do we deserve for God to condescend from his holy place and instruct us and tell us the way we should go to give us teaching, to lead us in the path and the way. No, we don't deserve that, but God is merciful 
and gracious and slow to anger. And even though we sin, he comes down and he says, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you what you need to know to live a life that is pleasing to me. But we all know what happens when you get a little bit of information. When you learn new things, the natural tendency at times is to start thinking, hmm, I really know quite a bit. This is pretty cool. I can get into arguments. I can win a debate. I know what happens when such and such takes place. We start to puff ourselves up with a little bit of knowledge. And so the emphasis here comes in the need for humility. So you see that connection? God instructs sinners, undeserved sinners in his way. And because we are still sinful, we take that information at times and we go, hmm, that's pretty cool. I'm pretty smart because I figured that out. And God says, no, there's a qualifier. He instructs the humble in his ways. You see that here in the text? And when I read this section, I see that the leading and the instruction of the Lord are reserved for those who have humility. If we invert verse 9, it would say, he does not lead the arrogant in what is right or teach the proud his ways. Do you want to know the instruction of God? Are you in a place where you're saying, I need this, I need to know, I want God to teach me, I want him to open his word to me, I want to know what he requires for my life? Then humble yourself before the Lord. He will only instruct those who are humble before him. Do you know that? That's why this is here in verse 9. When we see ourselves in comparison to him, and this, this is what happens when you, when you set your affections on God, when you lift your soul to him, you see who he really is, and you see who you really are. And the only right response to that is a humble gratitude that God would instruct sinners in the way. Isn't that wonderful? God didn't have to do that. He could have just given us some general instruction and said, well, figure it out. You're sinners, I'm holy. There'll be no connection here. No. No, he instructs us. And what a blessing that is. Now the need, I think, in the next section, verses 11 to 15, can be seen primarily in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. I'm not sure if you've thought about it this way before, but friendship with God is a need that we have. Now, I'm not talking about a, a kind of surface-level, casual, buddy-buddy kind of friendship. We don't relate to God the same as you relate to the guys you play tennis with. But what we should see in the friendship with God is the absence of an adversarial relationship. To say that we are friends with God or to say that God is a friend to us is to say that our standing with him is not one of judgment and condemnation, but he is on our side. Remember what we saw last week about the power and the authority of God in his creation of the world and his sustaining of all things? That power for the friend of God is not leveraged in judgment. He is on your side if he is your friend. And let me tell you, if he is not your friend... In this sense, if God's attributes, if his power and his justice and everything is against you, 
There is no hope. So how does this work? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And we saw last week again that the word fear here is not terror, it's not dread, it is reverence, right? Three different words for that. This is the word for reverence, respect, honor, a lifting up and recognizing the position that God has. So how do we come to fear the Lord? You've got to know him. This is really similar to how do you come to love God? You come to know him. Married people, you know this. You love your spouse way more after 20 years than you did that first day because you know them. You understand them. You've experienced things with them. And the same thing goes for God. The more we walk with him, the closer we walk with him, the more we love him. And the same goes for the fear of God. The more you understand his character, what he has done on your behalf, all you can do is drop your mouth open and say, oh, he's done all that for me? Unbelievable. And yet the fear of God is what we need to remove his wrath against our sins. Does that make sense? Track with me on this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember that when the scripture says that? So the friendship of God is for those who fear him. And I'm saying that as we consider who God is, as we lift our soul to him, we understand more and more that our duty, our joy is to fear him and to respect him. So if you want to have God as your friend, if you don't want all of his attributes leveraged against you, if you want him to be a rock and a refuge, set your heart and your mind on him and learn the fear of the Lord. All right, two more. Sixth section, verses 16 through 18, and I think you're going to be able to see very clearly what the need is here. Look at some of the words that David uses. Lonely, afflicted, troubles, distresses, affliction, trouble, sins. See all of that in this little section of three verses? So tell me, what's the need? I think David needs comfort from God in the midst of pain. I think David needs comfort from God in the midst of pain. Now it's easy for us to read the Psalms and to take some of the language that David uses like his bones wasting away and his, his flesh falling off and all the, and, we, and we immediately spiritualize that and we say oh that's an illustration for something else that's going on and that's true I have stood in this pulpit and said the physical things are meant to tell us a spiritual reality and I absolutely agree, agree with that I believe it wholeheartedly but if we neglect the fact that just like you and I David actually experienced pain real physical pain that he needed comfort from, if we forget that and jump to a spiritual application, we miss a big part of the comfort that is available from our loving Heavenly Father. So when I read some of these words, affliction, distresses, trouble, David experienced things just like you and I did. And he is calling out to God, I need, I need you to comfort me. I need to be reminded that you're for me. This really stinks. And I need to know that you are with me. I need comfort 
in this situation. We cannot escape the reality that because of the fallenness of our world and because of the fallenness of our own bodies, we experience hurt. We experience pain. We experience all the nastiness of the effects of sins on our bodies. Now, I don't know all the reasons for this. The Lord has peeled back the curtain a little bit, but I mean, my whole life has been marked by physical pain. I'm not whining. The Lord's preserved me through all of it. But being diabetic for 40 years, eye surgeries, lasers, eye injections, dialysis, kidney transplant, nerve damage, biopsies, on and on the list could go. And that is nothing compared to how some of you have suffered or how you will. So what is our greatest need when we are in pain? It's not for a better medical team. That's great. It's a gift from God. Use it. It's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not for the right balance of drugs, as wonderful as they can be, legal prescription drugs. Your need isn't even for the removal of the pain. We pray for that, and we should. That's good and right. But the greatest need we have is for God. To to do this. To comfort us. There's nothing that will get you through the knowing that God is with you. That he'll comfort you. Uphold you. Sustain you. I know that some of you know this with absolute certainty. And I want all of us to know this with absolute certainty. I can't promise many things. We don't have the ability to see those things through. But I can promise you this, that whatever you are going through, whatever kind of internal, external, physical, literal, whatever pain you are in, God will meet you there. He did it for me. He continues to do it for me. He will do it for you. He cares for you. And that's what David's crying out for here. He's in trouble. He's afflicted. His body hurts. He says, God, comfort me. And how does that happen? You could finish this now, right? By lifting your soul to God. By looking beyond that immediate circumstance of pain and discomfort and horrible nights and not sleeping and all that kind of stuff, you look to God and say, I lift my soul to you, God. I don't know what else to do. And God meets you there. So if the need is comfort in pain, look to Jesus. Look to God. And he'll meet you there. Now let's look at this last section as we come to a close. Verse 19 through the end of the chapter. And I'm saying that the need here is for perseverance. Look at these verses. 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Now the concern here is that David's enemies are going to overtake him. Such intensity to their hatred that David actually envisions a future where they succeed at their plans and they overtake him. 
And he is destroyed. He is taken away. And he says, God, I don't think that's the best thing. I want to continue to live my life and be a testimony for you. I want to sing your praises and declare your goodness. And if they eliminate my life, that's not an option. Preserve me, O God. This is a really good parallel to Psalm 16. The opening of Psalm 16, verse 1, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So by hiding yourself in God, by admitting that we cannot preserve ourselves, but we need the preserving grace of God, that is how we get the strength. That's how David gets strength, and he cries out here for this persevering strength of God. Now I want to read you one more text from Psalm 16. So remember the context that we're in here of the need of perseverance in this section, the uh, stability and strength that David desires, security in God, lifting your soul to him. Keep all of that in mind, right? You got that? Okay, now listen to Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Sounds a lot like lifting your soul to him, doesn't it? I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So you see what's happening here? And back in Psalm 25, David is in need of the persevering strength of God and the way that he gets it, he says in Psalm 16, 8, is by lifting his soul to God, by setting the Lord always before him. That is the source of strength that keeps him going. It is the reminder that God is faithful to his word to preserve him and to carry him through whatever this situation is that he's in. So you see, we have this one overarching principle. Lifting up your soul to God, setting your heart and your affections on him, and then each of the needs in the rest of these seven sections, can be met by doing this thing. So now we have to ask the question as we come to a close. How does Jesus transform the application of this psalm? What does this have to do with Christ? I shot off my big mouth last week and says it does. So we got to figure this out, right? How does this connect to Jesus? Well, in David's day, in our immediate context the application of this would have been directly or exclusively to Yahweh, who we would call God the Father. And that's good and right, and it's still true. However, as history progresses, as the history of God's redemption progresses, so does his revelation. So what do we see when we come to the New Testament regarding the lifting up of our soul to God or the setting of our heart and our mind on him, what do we see there? Well, we're presented with an expansion of this idea and the expansion now includes not only the Father but also his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Keep all that we've said in mind. Now listen to this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ 
in God. Do you see what I see there? If the need is for comfort or direction or perseverance or strength or the ability to not be ashamed, where do we look this side of the cross? Say it. Jesus, set your mind on things above where Christ is. And so completely does he transform this idea that Paul says that the totality of our life is now tied up in Christ. You see that? Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when we find ourselves in need, and oh, the needs that we have. We could have spent a whole morning just talking about the needs in this room alone. But when you have need, look to Jesus. He is the one who came, took on human form, experienced everything that you are experiencing but to a greater degree so that he could be a faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus knows what you're going through. He will supply everything you need. So, look to him. Lift up your soul to him. He is the answer, brothers and sisters. It is all about him. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we understand that all of this instruction, all of these needs, all of these things, we, we just don't have the ability to meet these needs on our own. And of course, there's instruction, there's things we can do, but we come and we humbly submit, Lord, that we need Jesus. He is the one who is able to give us what we need because he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He understands our need for direction and comfort and hope and assurance and all those things. And now because of what he has done, we can actually have confidence that when we ask you for these things, you will grant them. God, I pray that you would increase our faith. Don't let us... Not ask because we're afraid that you might not answer. Help us to have confidence, Lord, that we can approach you because of what Jesus has done and ask for assurance of your love, direction for our life, the strength to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, all these things, God, do it so that Jesus Christ, your son, receives maximum praise and glory. And it's in his name that I pray now. Amen. Amen.